everyone here, and uh, it's a privilege to be up here and to uh, be teaching on a special book and a book that has impacted me and uh, that I'm, I'm glad Dennis asked me to talk on. So uh, I hope to to bring out things, probably things you've heard, but um, things that uh, truths that will encourage you and, and challenge you uh, in the words of Jesus, so. Uh, can you make a space for this? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, let's move yeah, some away. Uh, this is much better. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. But, uh, so tonight, um, I'll, you have your outline with you, and um, I'll kind of, kind of walk you through it real, real quickly, but, um, uh, There'll be like a brief introduction, and then um, I'll give you a brief commentary on the life, death, and example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, we're going over his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a, a classic. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, to bring out um, who he was and who he is, because I believe that uh, how, you, how you walk in the Christian life sh uh, really proves your teaching. And um, he, uh, he was a, a man with um, a lot of heart, and he was a great example. And so I hope to bring that forth. And I'll be outlining the book and the, the essential issues it addresses. And we'll explore chapter one, which uh, I really wanted to dive deep into chapter one this evening because it, uh, it just very very good words that Bonhoeffer brings out, and uh, I just really want to dive in deep into that because I think it'll, it's, it's very relevant to today. Um, and then there'll be a, a part of application that I hope will be edifying and helpful. But uh, So first we're going to go through some scriptures um, to kind of... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. let's pray. <laughs> Fine. All right. Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Uh, thank you so much for this fellowship that we have tonight. Thank you for Dietrich Bonhoeffer and for what what he's done and did. Um, I pray that you be glorified tonight and that the Holy Spirit moves and works tonight, Lord, and that uh, you teach us, you teach me, and that we look upon you and who you are and what the cross is and what it means to us, what it means for what you meant it to me. So thank you, Lord, and I pray that you just be glorified tonight. Thank you for everything, for saving us and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> All right, so first we'll be going through some verses, and I picked these verses. Uh, they're introductory verses that I'd like to go through to soak you in in the heart of tonight's study. So uh, we'll start with Matthew um, 8, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. It reads...
Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Next will be uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Next will be Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, Same book, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my, for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, speaking to the rich young ruler, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And finally, Luke chapter 9. Verse 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I know that was kind of a uh, <laughs> run through through a lot of verses, but the reason why I wanted to go to these verses to introduce this topic is because um, you see a theme throughout all of them, and that theme is a cost, and there's a cost of following Jesus. See, following Jesus isn't heroic; it is humbling. Following Jesus isn't reasonable, it's radical. Following Jesus isn't safe, it's a sacrifice. Following Jesus isn't solely daring, 
it is death. Following Jesus is a natural, it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus isn't cheap, rather, it is costly. When we became a part of God's kingdom, this is what we signed up for. This is what God is calling to us daily. This is imperative for every person calling himself or herself a Christian to see and know. This is what a disciple of Christ means. Literally, one who follows one's teaching. It indicates thought accompanied by endeavor. <coughs> when one becomes a Christian, that isn't the time where he or she is, is, to, is to sit and say, hey, I've made it. I'm saved. I'm not going to hell. I've, I've done my one good work. Um, now that I've done all I needed to do, it's time to go on my merry way. <coughs> no. When one becomes a Christian, that is when he or she is to stop to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and ask him teach me Lord I want to follow you I want to learn from you I want to imitate you I want to be pleasing in your sight I want you and nothing and no one else becoming a quote Christian unquote in a loose, loose uh, term of the word uh, it's not the goal, it's not the end goal of what it means to be saved. It is the starting point. You didn't make a decision for Christ, but Christ made a decision for you. And this decision is a calling. And this calling is a call to follow. You've only just begun when regeneration sets in. When one becomes a Christian, I love this picture. Uh, they immediately take up his or her cross and inch by inch start moving with, with God behind pushing you. Uh, Christ alongside and the Holy Spirit uh, alongside pulling you and with, with Jesus ahead of you beckoning you to follow. As we move one step closer in this march, the old skin, the old man, the flesh, and all it holds dear starts to peel and burn away in the refining, purifying, blazing light of God's glory and his sanctifying power. Now, if this sounds too little for us, if, if we think that we're bigger than this, then uh, we're, we're not ready to follow Jesus. We can't, we won't be able to. We're sheep, and he is our shepherd. We're followers, and he is our leader. We're slaves, and he is our master. We're disciples, and he is our teacher. And we want to learn from him tonight. So, with that said, as an introduction, I want to point you to a man in a book called Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So that's Bonhoeffer right there. And, uh, uh, he was born on February 4th, 1904, 
in Breslau, Poland, which is modern day uh, Rokla, that's not the right pronunciation, but uh, uh, it was too hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's just German, so uh, the pronunciation was hard. But uh, Breslau is still the largest city in Western Poland by today's standards. Uh, Bonhoeffer was the son of a university professor and had three brothers, a twin sister, and three other sisters. Uh, seven siblings altogether. Uh, there's, there's a memoir section in, in Cost of Discipleship by a man named G. Lebholz, and he records uh, kind of Dietrich's uh, personality and the things he went through. It's kind of like a mini-biography, in a sense. But uh, he says that Dietrich was uh, as open as any man could be to all things which m make life beautiful. That was a beautiful quote. <laughs> um, he deeply, Dietrich deeply loved his family, fiance, nature, and made friends everywhere he went. Leibold's notes, however, what marked Bonhoeffer most was his unselfishness and preparedness to help others up to the point of self-sacrifice. At the age of 24, he lectured on systematic theology in Berlin University and then later went to Union Technological Seminary in New York. Bonhoeffer, attuned with the times and having an overwhelming love for his countrymen, abandoned his academic career in New York when Hitler came to power in 1933. So when this happened, he headed back to Germany, and as early as February of the same year, uh, he started to condemn on the, on the radio Hitler and the Nazi uh, regime, and um, he said that Germany was making Hitler its god and idol. And so he really caught on to this really early on. Uh, leaving for London to pastor two separate congregations, he soon returned back to Germany in 1935 to direct an illegal church training college. This unique college for its day, which it was, uh, was closed down five years later in 1940 by the Gestapo. So, illegal, but for the Lord. Uh, as World War II loomed, his friends abroad desired Bonhoeffer to leave Germany for fear of losing his life, since he was opposed to serving in the army in an aggressive war. When asked, what will you do when war comes? Bonhoeffer responded, I shall pray to Christ to give me the power not to take up arms. And though friends in America got him out of Germany in June 1939, Bonhoeffer could not desert his oppressed and persecuted fellow Christians and the nation at a time when he felt they needed him the most. And so he returned back to Germany. Bonhoeffer gained a strong spiritual influence in Germany in opposing the war and therefore was arrested along with his sister Crystal and her husband in his parents' house on April 5th, 1943. Yeah, that picture up there is uh, Breslau, Breslau. Um, and that's Poland, so you see where, where he's born. Uh, after being arrested, he was held in prison in concentration camps. Um, but what I found so amazing is that during this time he was imprisoned, uh, he inspired those who came in contact with him due to his godly character and approachability. 
so much so that even his guards treated him with respect. Uh, and I quote, some of whom became so attached to him that they smuggled out of prison his papers and poems written there and even apologized to him for having a lock, for having to lock his door after his round in the courtyard. So even the guards respected him and were, were really inspired by his personality. Uh, prisoners in his company were also impressed with the calmness he displayed, even when faced with some terrible situations. One instance was during the heavy bombings of Berlin. It, it is said that while prisoners all around were overcome with terror, were howling and beating against the locked doors of their cells, in the hopes of being transferred to safe bunkers, Bonhoeffer stood like a giant before men. And though he was a giant before men, he was a child before God. And the fight between the spirit and the flesh, flesh was just as present in his life as it is in ours. And this is, this is seen throughout a lot of his writings. He wrote a lot of poems and, and letters. And he wasn't um, the, the perfect man in any sense, but he just trusted God and... Uh, really had God shape his life. It was on October 5th, 1944, when Bonhoeffer was transferred to the main Gestapo prison in Berlin, where he expected that his death would probably most likely take place. His transfer was ordered after discovering Bonhoeffer's ties to a failed uh, July 20th plot, which, uh, if you guys have heard or seen the movie Valkyrie uh, with, with Tom Cruise, um, uh, Bonhoeffer's not mentioned in that movie, but he had a hand in that uh, assassination attempt. And it wasn't a, a, big, a big hand in it, but uh, he uh, was definitely a part of it. And when Bonhoeffer was transferred, um, a fellow prisoner remarks of, of this transfer, his eyes were quite unnatural although he himself appeared perfectly calm, saying goodbye to his friends as though there wasn't anything to worry about, even though he knew that he would probably be put to death. Direct contact to the outside world would be now cut off entirely. One of his last writings, now fully certain his execution was coming, was a poem entitled, Stations on the Road to Freedom. I'll read you a verse of it. I really thought it was a good Good verse. Come now, solemnest feast on the road to eternal freedom. Death and destroy those fetters that bow, those walls that imprison. This our transient life, these souls that linger in darkness, so that at last we see what is here withheld from our vision. Long did we seek you, freedom, in discipline, action, and suffering. Now that we die, in the face of God himself, we behold you. Some more uh, pictures of Bonhoeffer there. And that bottom picture right there was uh, the last facility where he was uh, held and kept and where he uh, was executed. It was, uh, the camp was called, or it was in Flossenburg. But, uh, so that gives you a picture of what it looked like and... Um, yeah. 
In February of 1945, the Gestapo prison in Berlin was destroyed by an air raid. It was then when he was taken to this concentration camp and from there to other locations uh, until a special order of Himmler. And Himmler was a um, uh, very evil man who had a big hand in the Holocaust. So it was by his special order for Bonhoeffer to be transferred uh, to this last facility and to be hanged uh, at Flossenburg on April 9th of the same year. What's ironic about this is that this was only a few days before this camp and this site was liberated by the Allies. Uh, I found this very encouraging and interesting. Uh, it is said that a witness of Bonhoeffer's execution he says, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, and they climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, says this witness, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. After all these years, Bonhoeffer's grave is still yet to be found. We don't know where he was buried. I wouldn't imagine they would bury him. All right. But we do know that during the past 50 years, we can take in this, that this man of God has been enjoying the wonders and glories of heaven and of God himself. His last recorded words before his death were, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. So that's a, that's a brief overview of who he was and what he accomplished. It's very, very inspiring. And took, took a lot of notes from that. So moving on, uh, this is Bonhoeffer again, and this book, and we'll be getting into some of this book tonight. And, uh, let's see here. The, uh, the book, The Cost of Discipleship, was written to the church. It's for the church, and it was specifically for the church in Germany uh, during this time of war and struggle, but we can take so much from it. And originally it was titled, uh, see if I can pronounce this, Nachfolge, uh, Nachfolge, um, which in German means uh, to succession or to follow, literally means that in German. Um, it was first published in 1937 and remains to this day to be uh, a classic on Christian thought and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's over 300 pages long. It's big, kind of thick. But it's outlined in four parts. So uh, it's, you have part one, which is uh, Grace and Discipleship. Part two, which covers uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Three, uh, entitled The Messengers. 
and forward, the Church of Jesus Christ in the Life of Discipleship. In part one, Bonhoeffer, which is entitled Grace and Discipleship, Bonhoeffer comments on a disciple's relation to grace, obedience, the cross, and what it means to be called by Christ, and what that call actually is and actively requires of him or her. Part two, the Sermon on the Mount, is formulated in three subsections, which covers uh, chapters five, six, and seven of the Gospel of Matthew. It uh, expounds on the Beatitudes, and it's one of the best works I've read on the Beatitudes. So I really enjoyed it. That's uh, why Nicholas Nicholas gifted me this book, and a big reason why is because I wanted to read on the Beatitudes. um, So I really appreciated that. Part three, the messengers, uh, refers to the disciples and their ministry and work found in scripture. And part four, the church of Jesus Christ and the life of discipleship, regards the whole church and its committed relationship to its head, Jesus. I would say that if you're looking for a very readable, biblically driven work on what it means to be a genuine, persevering disciple of Jesus, uh, this would be that one book. what I loved about it is that it was so readable and very clear, and Bonhoeffer is so quotable. You read him, and it's just line after line, and um, it really hits hard. He writes how I would like to write. Um, so uh, before we dive into the first chapter, um, I wanted to cover uh, small areas or like highlights uh, from the cost of discipleship in this first first section on grace and discipleship because it all kind of goes together and I thought um, it would it would bring out some some good and, and food for thought that we could chew on and then I really want to hit hard on the first chapter uh, costly grace so um, in in chapter two entitled the call of Dis- to discipleship Bonhoeffer stresses that a disciple's response to Jesus' call is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Jesus. He uses the example, which we read earlier, uh, when Jesus called Matthew, uh, reads, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of toll, and he saith unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Here Bonhoeffer points out, and I really love this, uh, that obedience followed the call immediately. There's no time gap for Matthew. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, follow me, uh, let me you know, get some things together, and then I'll come. He left his job, his, his, uh, his employment, right there. And Bonhoeffer comments that he's, he's read, he was reading some people who said there was a time gap between. And he was like, no, 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 that's not, that's not right. Um, so uh, he compares this act of obedience that Matthew uh, gave from Jesus' call to other men Jesus encountered in the Gospels. And uh, we'll find that in uh, Luke chapter 9. Verse 57 through 62. So Luke chapter 9, 
57 through 62. I read some of this earlier, but I want to bring it out again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. For as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in this, in this passage, and then also we'll look at Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. So Matthew 19, 16 through 22. This is the rich young man. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, This is Jesus, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The man said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Bonhoeffer contrasts these two instances of encounters Jesus had with potential disciples, people who wanted to follow him, kind of, but they had their terms of following of following Jesus. And that's something that Bonhoeffer stresses in this, in this chapter, chapter 2, and with this contrast between Matthew, Jesus just told Matthew, follow me, and it's not recorded, and we can take it that Matthew didn't say well yeah but these men they had well let me do this let me do this uh, before I come follow you so it was like they were saying uh, before I can follow you God um, let me let me take care of this I can't do it right now I have to go do something else and uh but Christ requires all, and when he calls you, you get up and you go. So, he says, the gulf, the gulf between a voluntary offer to follow and genuine discipleship is clear. Uh, I would write this down or just remember this, this quote by Bonhoeffer. Uh, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. For faith, this is Bonhoeffer again, is only real when there is obedience, never without it. 
and faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. I thought that was great. So that's mostly chapter 2. In in chapter 4, entitled Discipleship and the Cross, Bonhoeffer exposits uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, where Jesus speaks these words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. So in this passage, uh, Bonhoeffer states that self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification or asceticism. Self-denial is not suicide, for there is an element of self-will even in that. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only Him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, He leads the way. Keep close to Him. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. The opposite of discipleship is to be ashamed of Christ and his cross and all the offense which the cross brings in its train. How clear those words ring true for us. And they challenge us. And they say suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. There's a cost to following Christ. And this cost isn't always, mostly never, agreeable to the old man in the flesh. So now, I really want to, as I said before, uh, dive deep into chapter 1, which is entitled Costly Grace. So this is how the book begins, and I thought, what a great opener, and what a great way to start uh, this first study in, in this book and to get you familiar with it. Bonhoeffer writes... The first words you'll read in The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Here, Bonhoeffer's introduction to this thesis is one of blunt, call-to-action seriousness, setting the stage for his literary tone itself throughout the book and for how vital this theological issue was to him. Uh, when you read Bonhoeffer, it's, uh, it'd be inconceivable to, to not read him and to get this sense of urgency. He's like, he's pressing on. He's, he's a call-to-action kind of guy. He's like a soldier when he writes. And um, there's just this, this fury and this passion in his words when you read him. So... Uh, he, he wants the church, he wants us to come awake, to be fully alert with not one hindering distraction nearby, so to listen 
with hopefully unclogged ears as w to what he is about to bring forth. So, he says that cheap grace, <coughs> cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church and that we're fighting now for what he calls costly grace. This is the phraseology he uses. So we have this enemy and then we have something we're fighting for. And I think that's really important to note because uh, in any uh, doctrinal or spiritual warfare that we go through, we're not only trying to refute what is error or what is wrong, but we want to replace it with what's right. And it's not just always negative, negative. It's we, we need to bring the truth. We can't just refute things. And so Bonhoeffer does this, and he, uh, he takes the differences between cheap grace, and he defines uh, both terms in this first chapter. So what we're going to do is define these, and uh, I'll show you what Bonhoeffer brings forth and how he defines them. Uh, and then we'll contrast. Yeah, it said the battery's low. I wasn't trying to change it. Hope it holds out. But, um, so, uh, there's a lot of quotes here because I feel like that Bonhoeffer really, like I said, is very, very clear. And there's no way for me to, like, try to make it more clear because as I read it, I was like, that's, that's how I would say it. Or, you know, so, yeah, and, and I don't want to misrepresent what he says. And so, in defining cheap grace, he says that cheap grace means grace sold on the market like Cheap Jack's wares. And I had to look up, well, what's Cheap Jack? You know? <laughs> like it's written in 1937. Um, I, don't, I don't know what they are. but um, So I looked it up, and uh, Cheap Jack's wares were, um, they were dealers in cheap merchandise. They were people who would sell things uh, at cut prices. It was like on sale. So he's saying that Cheap Grace, this is on sale grace for, for everyone. Um, it says that grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. He says grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. The church which holds the correct doctrine of grace has, it is supposed, a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition or remorse is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. He says, we gave away the word and sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation, unasked and without <laughs> contrition. Our humanitarian sentiment 
made us give away that which was holy to the scornful and unbelieving. We poured forth unending streams of grace. He says in emphasis here, Cheap grace therefore amounts to a denial of the living word of God, in fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. And being sarcastic in this one party says, well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. He must let grace be grace indeed. Otherwise, he will destroy the world's faith in this free gift of grace. Let the Christian rest content with his worldliness and with this renunciation of any higher standard than the world. Let him be comforted and rest assured in his possession of this grace, for grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. So he says, this is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace that amounts to justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. There's no repentance. Sin doesn't depart from this person. It's just a cheap... Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, he says that Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ. So I say, after reading that, what a sad, shallow, broken, pitiful, phony, tasteless, worldly distortion of the life-changing, all-sufficient, satisfying grace of God given to believers. And I think we should agree with that. By the sound of this, uh, cheap grace for the Christian would be synonymous with denying the very gospel. And this gospel calls us to three things, and I want us to look at these three things in Scripture real quick. The first is discipleship, what the gospel calls us to. And that will be in Luke chapter 14. Verses 26 through 35. So Luke 14, 26 through 35. I have my heading here, the cost of discipleship. <laughs> this is something that uh, Steve Lawson preached on in his seminar at the Shepherds Conference that Nicholas and I were part of. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus, 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the gospel calls us to renounce our possessions and all that we have and to renounce our love for possessions and, and even people when compared to God. That's the meaning of this passage. It's not um, that we hate our families and that we, we hate our children. It's that we love God more than these things, as though our love for Him almost seems like hate compared to our love for God. <coughs> And so it uh, calls us, the gospel calls us to discipleship. And we'll look in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So here Jesus is saying that if you abide in my word, if, if you live in his word and in him, you're, you're going to be a disciple. When you become a Christian, you start to walk. You start to follow Christ on this death march. Uh, the second thing that the gospel calls us to is for good works. And uh, we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you speaking of grace, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So there's good works there. And then in Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So we have the gospel calls us into discipleship. It calls us for good works. And I believe in everything ultimately to love Jesus Christ. And this is found in John 14. Verse 21 through 24. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And I think what's important is that here what we're dealing with is that well, what are uh, Jesus' words and those are the words recorded in the Gospels and he calls us to die to ourselves. and if we don't follow that then it shows that we don't love him so uh, I wanted to contrast that between you know cheap grace which doesn't do any of these things. It doesn't call into discipleship. It doesn't um, abide in his word. It doesn't uh, prove for good works this grace that Bonhoeffer was fighting. And so um, with costly grace, and we're going to love this, uh, Bonhoeffer tells us what costly grace is. And um, he didn't quote these scriptures um, in, in the text, but as I read what he said, I was like, that's in Scripture, that's in Scripture. And um, so I'll just read the Scriptures he took from it. We won't be um, going to them, but... Uh, so here we have costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure, says Bonhoeffer. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. This is taken from Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. He says, It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. Matthew 5, 29. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Which is taken from Matthew 6, verses 7 through 11. Uh, this is a very, very good quote. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ.
It is costly because it, it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner instead of justifying the sin. Above all, says Bonhoeffer, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and We'll start at verse 19. Paul writing, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Bonhoeffer says, And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us, because it costs the life of his son. It is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It is the sanctuary of God. It is to be protected from the world, and he says, not thrown to dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which he speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. And it is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you have something that when you contrast these two, cheap grace, which is sold to everyone and on sale, that doesn't ask for anything in return with no cost compared to the grace that cost, that, that Jesus paid for, that cost his own life. So I say that this costly grace is so beautiful and should be for us. Cheap grace opens its arms wide, tickling the ears of its recipients, shouting aloud, All grace, no cost. You don't have to change the lifestyle you've been living in. It's okay, you're fine now. You've done your one work. God and His grace has it all covered. Go on, speak as you always have. Do as you've always done. Love people the same way you've always loved them. Hang out with the same people you've always hung out with. And don't worry about your neighbor's sin or even your own. Grace is taking care of it without you present, active, or even conscious of it. I try to think of some examples, um, just kind of practical examples, and one I thought of was um, that pictures cheap grace to me in one sense is you have this, this band, you say they're musicians, and they play live. And you go, you have, there's this concert, and you go to uh, you're a audience member, and they're up there, and they're 
they're up there and they're playing, but it's actually a track that's recorded, and they're just it's fake. And you went there to see, yeah. But you went to see the live. You wanted to see. You 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 paid something for this. Yeah, and it's it's fake. It's phony. It's counterfeit. Or it's like if you wanted to move to a different state for this one purpose, like a job, um, and you move there, and you, you don't get the job, you just, you're like, oh, I'm just gonna uh, live here, you know, not, not have a um, sense of income, you're, you're not doing what your purpose was. You, you just, you say you're a Christian, but you need to be active. So I say it's, it's sorely out of place for its intended purpose and incompatible. This cheap grace is the scapegoat and magic wand so-called Christians use to wave over their life, not the refuge and healthier promise they could have. They use cheap grace as a transparent, see-through, easily torn blanket to cover up their sins instead of the precious permanent and unconquerable blood of Jesus Christ washing their sins away. So instead of Jesus washing them away, they just cover them. They try to. Uh, when I read this, and what Bonhoeffer had to speak here of cheap grace, it immediately made, made me think of Romans 6. Verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there, Paul dispels any notion of uh, abusing grace, the grace that God has given. And in that passage, it, this grace is meant for us to walk in a newness of life. It's not to stay where we were. And... Um, Look at Romans, while we're in Romans, uh, chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So right there, dying to self is suffering. It's one, one way to look at it. And by, by being in Christ, we're heirs with Christ, but provided we suffer with him, it's like you have to suffer almost to be in Christ. Um, but that's so that we might be glorified. Yeah, it's Second uh, Corinthians four, which preparing a way to glory. 
So, costly grace takes hold of its recipients, embracing them, singing to them, all grace but all cost as well. And this cost is worth everything to you, every breath and penny. Join the death march, die to yourself, die to sin, kill sin, be persecuted, die for Jesus, live for Jesus. You will have more than you ever dreamed of paying this cost. You will find your life. You will be what you were made for. You will receive a weight of glory. You will live a life pleasing to God. You will know what it is to know God, and you will know God. Moving on in, in this chapter, uh, Bonhoeffer uses two examples of models adhering to costly grace. And these two examples, one biblical and one historical, and the biblical one is Peter, and the historical one is Martin Luther. So we're going to look at them and uh, see what Bonhoeffer had to say about them. So re with regarding Peter, uh, this was interesting to me, and surely noteworthy was the idea that uh, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. Th this word, These words, follow me, was the first and last word Jesus spoke to Peter. So we'll look at Mark chapter 1, verse 17. We'll start at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Simon speaks of Peter. And Jesus said to him, to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that was the first uh, time that Jesus called Peter to follow him. And then the last would be John chapter 21. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he, speaking of John, remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I find that really interesting. That even though, like Jesus is constantly, I think, calling us to follow him it's not we have to be rem reminded of that that even though um, Peter was made right here uh, his his ministry was just beginning and Jesus calls him to follow me so um, and what's interesting is that both times here is when Peter was working his old trade as a fisherman because in the, in the beginning there and at the end, they, they went back to what they were doing. And, but Jesus had to pull them back from their nets. That's what, they're, what they were working on. So, um, Bonhoeffer says, This grace was certainly not self-bestowed. Peter did not put this on himself. It was the grace of Christ himself, not prevailing upon the disciple, to leave all and follow him. Now, now working in him, that confession which to the world must sound like the ultimate blasphemy. 
now inviting Peter to the supreme fellowship of martyrdom for the Lord he had denied, and thereby forgiving him all his sins. In the life of Peter, grace and discipleship are inseparable. He had received the grace which costs. Now, regarding Luther, Martin Luther of the Reformation, who we have heard of and know very well of, um, Bonhoeffer, uh, he puts this in the context of the historical context um, in, in regards to the Reformation and Christianity during the 16th century. And he says that before the Reformation, the world was Christianized and grace became its common property. It was to be had at low cost. He says that there was an imbalance of gospel between secular Christianity and monasticism. And Luther was one of these monks. Um, They were trying to figure out uh, what grace accomplishes, but they were on two ends of the spectrum. So there was created a double standard, a maximum and minimum standard of Christian obedience. Um, Bonhoeffer adds that whenever the church was accused of being too secularized, it could always point to monasticism, the monks, and thus justify the other possibility of a lower standard of life for others. So they'd be like, well, if you want the grace that caused, you have to become a monk. Speaking of Martin Luther, God shattered all his hopes. He showed him through the scriptures that the following of Christ is not the achievement of merit of a select few like the monks, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. The grace which gave itself to him was a costly grace, and it shattered his whole existence. Once more, he must leave his nets and follow, just like Peter did. Luther did not hear the word, Of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. No, Luther had to leave the cloister and go back to the world, not because the world in itself was good and holy, but because even the cloister was only a part of the world. It was not the justification of sin, but the justification of the sinner that drove Luther from the cloister back into the world. It was grace because it cost so much, and it cost so much because it was grace. (laughs) That was the secret of the gospel of the Reformation, the justification of the sinner. That experience taught him that this grace had cost him his very life, it must continue to cost him the same price day by day. So far from dispensing him from discipleship, this grace only made him a more earnest disciple. And you see that in the life of Luther. He just was on fire after he learned about justification. It was revealed to him. Um, I thought this was very interesting uh, that Bonhoeffer goes over. One of Luther's most controversial sayings was, Sin boldly but believe and rejoice in Christ more boldly still. And people wondered what he meant in relation to God's given grace. And Bonhoeffer comments on this, and he says that what Luther was saying there was, take courage and confess your sin. Do not try to run away from it, but believe more boldly still. You are a sinner, so be a sinner, 
and don't try to become what you are not. Yes, and become a sinner again and again every day and be bold about it. But to whom can such words be addressed except to those who from the bottom of their hearts make a daily renunciation of sin and of every barrier which hinders them from following Christ, but who nevertheless are troubled by their daily faithlessness and sin? Who can hear these words without endangering his faith, but he who hears their consolation as a renewed summons to follow Christ? Interpret it in this way. These words of Luther become a testimony to the costliness of grace, the only genuine kind of grace there is. So, with this said, Bonhoeffer intensifies the seriousness of this false grace, and he, he says what really struck me here. He says that the word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. I was like, wow. Um, but it made me think of today. It made me think of American Christianity and how um, just you can tell, you can see it. Like, I, I, I was reading this and I was like, wow, he wrote this back then in 1937. But it's so relevant to today when you have these mega churches and these, uh, these people, these, these wolves in sheep's clothing who come in and just sell God at no cost for people. They just... Um, Buy this new book. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just... Uh, they don't... They don't disciple. They entertain you. They're, they're, uh, they're peddlers, as Second Corinthians 2.17 says of the Word of God. They preach there's no cost or subtractions, only temporal positive additions to your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, along with Bonhoeffer, I'd like to warn us that, as he warns us, don't buy cheap grace, don't buy their cheap grace, but the grace that costs, and tell others of this costly grace more boldly than these wolves or hell itself could ever cry out. So I would ask that we watch you know, who we listen to and what what we're doing, who we learn from. So, in conclusion, I'm sorry, guys, it's over over time, but um, this is the last section. But uh, I wanted to ask us uh, ourselves, what does following Jesus Christ cost us? Our hobbies, our jobs, our addictions, our selfish inclinations, our sins, our old lifestyles, our relationships our friendships, our families, how much time we give to the Lord, how much time we give to others, persecution, death. When you read Jesus' words that you must lay down your life, you must forget yourself, you must deny yourself and take up the cross, follow Him. He's not playing games. And uh, when we read those, we shouldn't work around them or, or try to take away what Jesus meant from those hard words. They're very hard. I, as I was going through this, I was so convicted and um, just like, what does it cost me? Um, Stephen Lawson said, 
in a sermon entitled, It Will Cost You Everything, you need to weigh in on the cost factor and count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It will cost you popularity, it will cost you promotion, it will cost you an easy life, you'll have to discipline yourself, you'll have to buffet your body, you'll have to say no to temptation, you'll have to say no to this world, you'll have to break with the crowd, you'll have to be willing to stand alone for Christ. You'd be willing to stand if you were the only person in the world for Jesus. As I heard that, I thought to myself, am I up to that? Like if, if everyone I knew, or if I was all alone in the world, would I still stand up for Jesus? Yes. <laughs> Probably the answer. <laughs> yeah. So, what has it cost us? And I would ask, is it worth the cost? Uh, I just want to go real quick to John 6. Verses 66 through 69 is something that I think we would all confess with Peter is asking, well, is it worth it? So John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, speaking of Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, is it worth it? Well, I would want to confess with Peter that who are we going to go to? John Piper said this, and I really loved it because it's, a, it's positive to end on, but uh, there was another side to this that I hadn't thought of before. He said that the reason we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves is not because we're liable to have too much pleasure in God. The reason is because we're so liable to find our pleasures elsewhere. Where would I be without self-denial, John Piper asks. In love with the world, that's where it would be. Suicidal pleasures, that's where it would be. It's all about joy. It's about more of God. None of that. I'm not going to be killed by that. I don't care how good it feels. He says, pursue your joy where it is, not where it isn't. And Bonhoeffer himself said in, in this book, in the uh, introduction, he said that discipleship means joy. He says, Bonhoeffer, happy are they who know that discipleship simply means the life which springs from grace, and that grace simply means discipleship. Happy are they who have become Christians in this sense of the word. For them, the word of grace has proved a fount of mercy. Only cheap grace gives excuses. I pray that may we be willing to pay the ultimate price for Christ as this faithful martyr for his and our Lord did with no hesitation or second thoughts. Because Bonhoeffer died for this and he believed in this.
So I'll just thank you guys and I pray that we uh, live live this. So let's pray now. Lord, you are holy and good and just. We want more of you and less of us and less of sin. I pray this, that we do want this, not just say it. You must increase, Lord, but we must decrease. And I thank you for this book, your word, and also the cost of discipleship by Bonhoeffer. Thank you, Lord, for the example he, he made and for uh, just your words and your people who um, encourage us, Lord, and inspire us, the people you've given to show what it means to be a true disciple. These are examples, Lord, and there's many more of them throughout history. I pray, Lord, that we learn of these men and women who died for you, who literally died for you. But I pray, Lord, that um, we die to ourselves and to sin, little or big, and that we take up our cross and that we follow you each and every day of our lives. May you be glorified. May we see you every day and through your word and abide in your word and love you. Our glory be to God alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.